I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week marks 25 years since Britain handed Hong Kong over to China. Unprecedented though this moment in history may be, we have the utmost confidence in the abilities and resilience of the Hong Kong people. While the former colony was supposed to be governed by China under a one-nation, two-systems agreement, things have changed in recent years. Another massive street protest, this in northern Hong Kong. Thousands upon thousands turned out to continue a weekend of demonstrations against the government here. What started as a protest against an extradition treaty with China has morphed into something far more serious. So what happened to the former British colony's hopes for the future? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Hong Kong a 25-year slide away from democracy. My name is Stephen Vines. I lived in Hong Kong up till last year. I'd been a presenter of a television current affairs programme on the public broadcaster. I'd been a columnist for Apple Daily. Last weekend, Stephen wrote for the Sunday Times about the changes the city has seen since June the 30th, 1997, the last day of British rule in Hong Kong, a moment that he witnessed firsthand. Well, I remember most the rain. It was an extraordinary day, the entire day. These rain-drenched ceremonies, there was one with Prince Charles. Britain is part of Hong Kong's history, and Hong Kong is part of Britain's history. We are also part of each other's future. We are confident that the ties between us will not only endure, but will continue to develop. And the last governor, Chris Patton. Now, Hong Kong people are to run Hong Kong. That is the promise, and that is the unshakable destiny And it was held in the open air, and I was sitting there on benches. It was in the old military base of Tamar, trying to take notes. And I realised every time I wrote down a note, it just got washed away. (laughs) So let's try and 
scramble under the benches and recreate what I'd remembered. But the most abiding memory was going up to the border just before the stroke of midnight when the forces of the People's Liberation Army were due to arrive to occupy the garrison there in Hong Kong. And I found myself in the middle of this cheering crowd. They were very enthusiastic, waving red flags, cheering away. The soldiers sat at the back of these flatbed trucks. They were bolt upright, unsmiling, holding their rifles aloft. My trade is cynicism, and I thought, well, you know, maybe what had been promised would actually happen. And what had been promised by China was that for the next 50 years, Hong Kong would be ruled under a one country, two systems process. And under that, Hong Kong would be allowed to pursue its previous way of life. It would have freedom of information, freedom of expression. There would be steady progress towards democratic elections. The judiciary would remain intact. And all of the liberties that Hong Kong had enjoyed under the colonial system would be allowed to continue. And did other people you were talking to in Hong Kong, you know, did the members of the Legislative Council, for example, I mean, did everybody think this was actually quite a hopeful moment? I think even some of the people who feared for the worst, and you, you mentioned members of the Legislative Council, of course, they were all cast out and a new Legislative Council was imposed of trustees of Beijing for a temporary period. I remember speaking to a number of those councillors. I know them quite well, people who are in the pro-democracy camp. And even them, they said, look, it's going to be tough, but we still have the space to operate. We're going to come back when they next allow elections. The media was very free. I mean, Hong Kong's media is enormous and raucous, or it was. And they had all sorts of spaces to express a point of view. So I didn't see among people who had been dedicating their lives to the democracy movement, great celebration. But I didn't see them in there, you know, down in the dumps thinking, this is the end of the world. They were far from it. Was there a sense that this really was the end of an era, but this was Britain leaving the colony? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But, you know, things move on very quickly. I mean, Tony Blair had just been elected as prime minister. He had many other things on his plate. Robin Cook, who was the foreign secretary at the time, was interested in Hong Kong, but not very. So, you know, at the political level, it was sort of job done. We've handed it over in good shape. No need for us to worry about it. And attention fades, as it always does. You lived there for more than three decades. What was Hong Kong like before the handover? I'm going to have to be a bit careful here, not to be too too nostalgic, but, you know. <laughs> oh, f- fire away. <laughs> <laughs> I arrived in Hong Kong at the time I was the Southeast Asia correspondent of The Observer, so I was travelling a lot to places in those days, particularly the Philippines and Indonesia, which were, A, chaotic and B, in the case of Indonesia, the old authoritarian regime was tottering on its heels. The old Marcos regime in the Philippines had just been overthrown. And, you know, these were places that, first of all, as I say, were chaotic, but also were places where really you had to be careful. You had to watch what you were doing. At all times, you had to be cautious. 
of your personal security, but also of what you said and what you wrote, because these were governments that didn't like criticism. In Hong Kong, on the contrary, you went through the gate of the airport and it was like a, a cloud had lifted. You could say what you wanted. There was nobody looking over your shoulder. You could be pretty sure that nobody was tapping your phone. You could be pretty sure that if there was something that the government didn't like that you wrote, you'd probably hear from them, but, you know, it would be the usual two-way that you get anywhere in the world. But, you know, that's part of the game, nothing serious. And uh, Hong Kong back then sort of had a reputation for a very vibrant, very sociable life for the expat community. What about for Chinese people who lived there? I mean, was it was it as free and easy? Was it a great place to be? For the average I hate to use these terms for the average person, but I've got to generalise. For the average person in Hong Kong, even those who were not wealthy, first of all, most likely they had come from families and conditions which were a hell of a lot economically more depressed, i.e. on the Chinese mainland. So, you know, relatively speaking, they'd improved their lot just by arriving in Hong Kong. There was this enormous sense in the air of opportunity. Just to tell you how much that sense affected me, I mean, I arrived as a journalist and I thought, you know, if I didn't carry on in journalism, probably, what would I do? Maybe join a PR firm, sort of associated trades. But in Hong Kong, I kept bumping into, these are local journalists, not expatriates, who, you know, they were doing all these side jobs. So within about a year of being there, I got involved with founding a kitchenware shop and then I got into <laughs> much more <laughs> different activities, all, all to do with food, because other than journalism, food's the only thing I know about. <laughs> and it just seemed possible. You know, I'm absolutely 100% convinced if I'd stayed in Britain, would I be doing that? Not a chance in hell. And when the handover happened, when the, the British had very visibly left, how much changed? I think there was a whole raft of little changes which weren't significant. I mean, some of them were funny. The one I've always liked most was they immediately went around painting all the red letter boxes in a sort of brilliant, bright green to make the point that they were no longer nasty colonialist letter boxes. Yeah. I thought, well, we can live with that. But there were other early signs that things were going to be different and that the agreement that had been given to the people of Hong Kong, I always say to the people of Hong Kong, although they were never consulted about the agreement, but they were the people who had to experience it, was being undermined. I mean, one of the first signs was that every time the government came across, this is the new post-colonial government, came across problems that they thought were intractable, they zipped up to Beijing for a reinterpretation of the mini-constitution, the basic law. It, it, they called it a reinterpretation, but actually it was a change in the mini-constitution to <laughs> insert whatever it was they needed to do. And, of course, that wasn't done through a judicial process. That was done purely through a political process and requests were made for changes to be made or they were initiated in Beijing itself and they just were made at a stroke. And things were going on in the background what I wasn't so much aware of, but I am now, is that China was building an enormous, what they call, united front network. So these are organizations and people who aren't directly members of the Communist Party, but are effectively. 
collaborating with the regime and working in its interests. I mean, the United Front became tremendously powerful. And just explain a bit about the United Front. Well, the United Front, in fact, isn't a Chinese invention. It's an old Leninist device developed in the Soviet Union. So <laughs> Lenin, of course, in his brutal way, was <laughs> much more brutal in describing many of the members of the United Front as useful idiots. But the whole point was to give the regime greater credibility. You would have all these organizations and prominent people who would be supporters of the regime, who would be able to say, quite truthfully, well, you know, I'm not a member of the Communist Party, but I think they're doing a jolly good job and blah, blah, blah. So you had in Hong Kong, you had schools, you had newspapers, you had community organizations, you had trade unions. They were all part of the United Front. I mean, the schools had an entire education curriculum, and some of those schools, incidentally, were very good. But they also had another agenda, which was to educate children in what is now being described as a patriotic manner. The newspapers, of course, were more obviously propagandistic, and they were awful and nobody read them. But, you know, they had lots of money because Beijing filed the money into them. It was quite an effective system. And as a journalist, were you starting to notice changes? Well, no is the simple answer. There was no pressure whatsoever. And I'm talking of a period of about two decades. I wasn't conscious of somebody leaning over my shoulder and going, don't write that. Oh, that's going to get you into trouble. There were people who said, don't write that. The government won't like it. And, you know, like a lot of journalists, I said, oh, well, must be doing the right thing then. <laughs> so for about two decades, the promise of one country, two systems did seem to hold. It did seem to be functioning in many ways. How did that all come to an abrupt end? Take us back to 2014. What happened? In March of that year... And not much noticed at the time, including by people like me who should have known better. You had this publication in Beijing of a so-called white paper. Today, the Central People's Government released the white paper on the practice of the one country, two systems policy in the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. This quote is taken from the so-called white paper released by Beijing. It says, quote, The high degree of autonomy of the HKSAR is not an inherent power, but one that comes solely from authorization by the central leadership. Asserting the right of the government in Beijing to have total control over Hong Kong's affairs, even though one country, two systems promised that internal affairs of Hong Kong would be in the hands of the Hong Kong government, this white paper said, well, that's no longer viable, we can't have that. By the end of the year, when the umbrella movement had poured onto the streets. In the streets, a sea of umbrellas, the symbol of a mass demonstration underway in Hong Kong. They used their umbrellas to protect themselves from the tear gas of the police. The Umbrella Revolution was born. Literally hundreds of thousands of people occupying and paralysing the centre of town for over 70 days, throwing up this amazing new leadership of terribly young people. I mean, below the age of 20, some of them. He may not be old enough to drink or drive, let alone vote, 
but this 17-year-old is causing Beijing sleepless nights. And you can see why. Who are articulate and caught the mood of people demanding, and this is what they were mainly demanding, that the promise for universal suffrage be implemented. Making that demand, occupying the centre of town, involving literally, as I say, hundreds of thousands of people, but a much bigger outer periphery of support. Mm. It transformed the atmosphere, and you also got a counter-movement. The Beijing loyalists suddenly realised that passive support of the regime wasn't good enough anymore. They had to be more vocal and active in themselves trying to mobilise support. So you then got, from that period, a much more divided society, but also a much more politically active society. Ultimately, the Umbrella Movement was defeated, achieved none of its objectives and was cleared off the streets and people started to get arrested. How did that come to an end? Was it through mass arrests? It was a combination of exhaustion. (laughs) To be out on the streets for sort of weeks and weeks on end, just not getting anywhere, Mm. that was that. Also, there were the arrests. And also there was, I think, a sense among the leadership of the movement, which, as I said, was very, very young, that maybe the time had come to take a pause and come back. But at the time, that sounded like fighting talk, as though that would never happen. Who knew that five years later, the size of the protests would be that much bigger? Coming up, how the protests escalated and how China cracked down. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Fiona Hamilton, the crime and security editor of The Times. I cover breaking stories from terrorist attacks to the world of organised crime, and I love delving into what's really going on in policing. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Five years on from those student-led protests and the sea of umbrellas, in 2019, new protests erupted in Hong Kong. They were prompted by the introduction of a new law by Carrie Lam, the Beijing-appointed chief executive of Hong Kong. It was, in a way, quite extraordinary. What prompted it was a decision by, she was then the new chief executive, to initiate a new extradition law, because as matters stand, because the two judicial systems were supposed to be separated, you couldn't send a suspect from Hong Kong across the border for trial. So they said, we need an extradition agreement that will then regularise the position. But this was the thing which sparked a lot of people's fears, because First of all, they knew this was a pretext. It wasn't the real reason. They really wanted to be able to extradite people to China itself. And you know what happens in China. If you appear in in the guilty box, and I say in the guilty box, you're guilty. 99.9% of the people who appear in court are found to be guilty. They then get very long sentences by international standards. And, you know, the judicial process in China is either a closed or an open-door trial, rarely lasting beyond a couple of days. And people in Hong Kong who'd escaped the arbitrary nature of the rule of law suddenly started to pay attention. Oh, my goodness, if we can be sent back across the border to be subject to that sort of judicial process, that's very scary. That's what started the movement. And was there a significant number of people in Hong Kong who had fled to Hong Kong to, to escape that kind of state control. One of the reasons that a lot of people fled from the mainland was not just poverty, although that was obviously a driving factor, but it was the arbitrary nature of communist rule on the Chinese mainland. The idea that you could be accused by your neighbour of saying something that was dismissive of the regime or you could be accused of being disloyal or whatever. The nation is riddled with informers who make it their business to do that. And people were living in a constant state of awareness of how precarious it was to be in a society where there was no rule of law, where there was only rule by law. And therefore, you could overnight, and this happened to so many people, overnight move from being a citizen to somebody in jail for a very long period of time. And I think that was at the back of a lot of people's minds. So you can imagine the fear that would have spread when Carrie Lam announced the possibility of an extradition treaty. What was it like 2019 when people did come out onto the streets? It was just extraordinary. I should say, first of all, the initial demonstrations were quite small. I mean by the standards of what happened next, a couple of hundred thousand people, and they just looked like stand demonstrations. But then something clicked. People got into their heads that this 
was the tip of the iceberg, i.e. this new law was the tip of the iceberg. What was really at stake was a much more fundamental reversal of the one country, two systems concept. And that is almost entirely down. You can rarely attribute these things to one person, but that was almost entirely down to Carrie Lam, whose attitude towards these demonstrations was so dismissive. Oh, these are children, you know, if they were my children, I'd discipline them and they behave a lot better. And people thought, what? Is that what she's saying? Is that what she's responding? So by June of that year, there were a million people this is the beginning of June. There are a million people wow. out on the streets. Remember, the population of Hong Kong is just over 7 million. That's a very large number. It was a peaceful demonstration, and it was extraordinary. I mean, I was in the middle of it, and it was just so large that it couldn't be contained. So it just went sort of spilled from street to street to street until each street was filled. That particular demonstration was very peaceful, very hot day, but people, you know, marched along and made their point. And at the end of it, Carrie Lam said, I don't care how many people are out on the streets, I'm going to take no notice. So within two weeks of that demonstration, two million people came out on the streets. I mean, they were so incensed by this attitude. And at that point, it seemed as though the whole of society, I mean, this isn't true because the government still had its supporters, but it seemed as though the whole of society had decided that they just couldn't put up with this any longer. I mean, it was absolutely fascinating to me to go on a demonstration where you could meet, and I'm giving literal examples, you could meet, you know, a finance manager in one corner, a waiter in another corner, a street cleaner in another corner. In other words, this wasn't a demonstration defined by social class. And incidentally, most of the people who I met had never been on a demonstration in their lives before. This was all a new experience for them. Mm. And they were just angry. They were mad. They were hopping mad. And how did Beijing respond? Well, this is where things get very interesting. Because Beijing is notoriously ill-informed about what's going on in Hong Kong, although they have numerous people on the ground there mainly because in a dictatorship, you know, you only tell your bosses what they want to hear. So they've been told, first of all, that these protesters were a little minority. It was hard to make that point when there were two million people on the streets, but never mind. They were a little minority. When it was two million people on the streets, they had to have a new narrative. So the new narrative was, oh, well, phew, you have no idea how the CIA and the British MI6 have been manipulating these crowds. That's why they're there. But, and this is where things turn very, very nasty, and I'm very sure that this is something that they wanted to do. But at the same time, by July, Beijing decided they actually wanted a confrontation. And it came to a head on July the 1st. There was again a monster demonstration, and there were a lot of... I have to say, very hot-headed people in the crowd, mainly young people, completely clad in black, masked up, who decided that they wanted to take this protest movement to another more violent level and wanted to occupy the Legislative Council. 
there was this large demonstration marching on one side of the road. It went past the Legislative Council, and they were beckoning people in, saying, come up, come across the road, we're going to occupy the Legislative Council. It was not a very large number of people who did it. And then I'm standing there with some colleagues, and we're looking at this, and they're banging down these big glass doors that were at the entrance to the council. And suddenly, all of the police disappeared. I thought, that's mm. very odd. They've disappeared. They're banging down the doors of the Legislative Council. Why aren't they intervening? They, they then, I mean, this is hours later. It was very hard to, to get in. The police all withdrew from inside the building. It seemed to me quite clear that there were agents provocateurs at work on the one hand, but on the other hand, they wanted to change the narrative of what was going on from being a large peaceful mass movement into being a violent movement that threatens society. And in this symbolic incident, when, of course, they did manage to bash down the doors and they did get into the Legislative Council chamber and they did spray paint it and all the rest of it, they could then say, see, this is what we always said would happen. There'll be chaos. There'll be violence. And from that point, things turn very, very nasty indeed. Violence is raging on both sides. Authorities clashing directly with protesters at the Chinese university, firing tear gas and rubber bullets into the crowd. Torrents of tear gas at every demonstration, beanbag bullets being used, bigger and bigger machines being brought in to spray the crowds. Things changed very, very rapidly after July 1st, 2019. How did those protests come to an end in the end? Brutally. The level of violence used against demonstrations by the police was, in my experience, unprecedented. And, you know, I covered demonstrations in many places where they had not been sparing in tear gassing the crowds and what have you. They were using this particularly noxious form of tear gas that they'd acquired from the mainland. That was one aspect of it. But they were pulling people in. This morning, anti-government protests in Hong Kong reaching a new level of violence, as police now say they arrested over 260 people in just one day. In the end, more than 10,500 people were arrested. They cut off the head of the protest movement by more or less arresting everybody involved in the democracy movement, even though some of those people hadn't really been directing these demonstrations at all. They simply started a crackdown everywhere in the schools. They started dismissing teachers who were suspected of not educating children in the right manner in the universities. Companies were forced to sign these one-page proclamations in newspapers of loyalty to the new order and to castigate the demonstrations for disrupting society. It was a very different mood, and it was gathering pace right up to 2020 when the very draconian national security law was introduced, which effectively ends free speech in Hong Kong. It makes it impossible to openly criticise the government. And Stephen, with those changes in 2020, so you'd had the brutal end to the protests in 2019. You had these new raft of changes in 2020, which, as you say, really restricted life for citizens of Hong Kong, freedom and freedom of speech. What made you finally leave just last year? 
when I think about it, I think, God, what an idiot I was. But anyway, I thought, so this law came into force on July the 1st. Hong Kong police have used water cannon to disperse activists protesting against the new security law imposed on the territory by Beijing. The demonstrators had gathered in... And I thought, well, you know, it's pretty bad, but how far will they really go? Is there any space left to operate as a journalist? I thought, you know, probably there is. They're, they're not going to go bonkers and arrest everybody. But the mood got darker and darker and darker. On the TV programme I was doing, the pressure was enormous. They'd installed a whole new raft of effectively commissars to control what we could put on air. And they introduced all these... I'm slightly smiling. You can't see this in a broadcast, but I'm slightly <laughs> smiling because they were just so balmy. But anyway, I couldn't wear a black tie because that would suggest mourning. I couldn't wear a yellow tie because that would suggest sympathy with the movement who'd adopted yellow as its colour. And then there was endless, endless submission of scripts before we went on air. The programme was recorded. It wasn't live. You weren't allowed to do anything live. And I think, just to justify their existence, they edited everything. So there was that going on. And then there was in the background, which was rather more sinister. I start getting people calling me up saying, are you really sure you should be going so far in uh, doing what you do? When are you thinking of leaving? At that point, incidentally, I hadn't been thinking of leaving. Wow. They weren't directly government people. I don't know what their motives were but it was very unsettling. And then somebody who, in fact, had been the editor of the English-language version of the Apple Daily newspaper, which had been shut down, attempted to leave Hong Kong and was arrested at the airport. And incidentally, I'm sorry to say, is still in jail. And I thought, goodness me, they're stopping people at the airport. Then we all heard that they were introducing this new law, which would in fact give the immigration authorities, as of August the 1st last year, powers to stop you leaving, and without the right of appeal, they could simply stop you leaving. So there were quite a large number of people, and we were very circumspect in the way that we spoke to each other about this, who thought, maybe that's the deadline, need to leave before then, and that's what it did. Stephen, this is only 25 years into what was supposed to be a 50-year transition period, 50 years of one country, two systems. Is that basically over now? I've resisted saying that for many years, that it's over, because it seemed like too big a thing to say, but it is. I mean, everything meaningful by way of liberty has been extinguished. Every form of autonomy which was promised, remember the slogan of the Communist Party was Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong. I mean, that's just clearly farcical. Hong Kong people don't even vaguely rule Hong Kong anymore. So yes, it's over. And the implication of it being over is that Hong Kong is headed to be a Chinese city like any other. Some people say, oh, that's a good thing. A lot of other people won't say that. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the journalist and broadcaster Stephen Vines. 
The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, if you learnt anything, then please do leave us a review or a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.